All right, Todd, welcome to the show. You are the founder, one of the founders of TrackJS and an expert on all things JavaScript. And we're going to get into all of that. But I want to start with, it says that you're working on becoming an aspiring digital comedian. So my question for you is, one, what does that mean? And two, what is your favorite comedian or comedy troupe or movie or, or what? what? What do you like about comedy? Well, well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. Second, um, what does aspiring mean? It means that I like telling jokes. I don't really have any intention of, uh, of doing it as my job. But I love telling jokes, and I think, you know, the internet is a fantastic medium for jokes. Um, my favorite comedian is actually a, a friend of mine who has kind of the same philosophy. His name is Lemon. And his website is at ahoylemon.xyz. And he makes internet, like, website jokes. So, for example, there's a website called partypartyparty.party, um, which is a game where you hit a button and it plays a sound that says party. And all it does is count how many times you hit the button. And you just hit it as fast as you can to try and get the highest score. And it's it's just a, a beautiful use of technology to tell a joke on the meaninglessness of websites. And um, I think those are fantastic. They are my favorite kind of jokes. Okay. All right. <laughs> we will have to check it out. I was going to say, because it looks like you have some passion here. I I, I don't know. I'm, I want to know more about it around com combining comedy in tech. So like, what is, what is PubConf? Like what, did you start this? And like, what exactly is it? I, I did start this. So because, because these kind of, um, you know, software contextual jokes are my favorite kind of thing. I really wanted to make a venue or a, uh, a place where the people who like that kind of thing can, can just, you know, go, go all in and be the nerds that they are and tell nerdy jokes and so I created this event called PubConf, which we usually partner with uh, like a software development conference to like, you know, bring all these people together. And then we just rent out a bar somewhere and throw like this little thing where these people who just love telling these kind of things and are just they love presenting and they love telling jokes um, can get up on stage for five minutes and do a little bit um, kind of like a conference talk. But the only point of it is to be funny and be entertaining. Um, and so that's what PubConf is. And it's a great time. Uh, I've done these, I think I've done like 20 of these at this point. Oh, wow. All over the, all over the world. Um, and they're, they're great fun. You show up, you hang out with a bunch of software developers that maybe you don't have anything in common with from your technology and career perspective, but you can all just kind of laugh and joke together because you're making fun of Microsoft or you're making fun of Java or you're making fun of Notepad or whatever, you know, whatever kind of shared experience as a developer that we can laugh about. So it sounds like it's almost like lightning comedy or something like a lightning comedy talk, you know, like see all these. Exactly. Okay. That's a, that's a great. Discussion. All right. But it's not like you don't like it, it isn't, doesn't have like, like, like real tech presentation. It's just like a fun comedy thing. It's not like a technical conference. Is that right? Am I getting that right? Yeah, it's not a tech. You won't come away learning anything from PubConf. Generally, generally you've gone to some technical conference somewhere. And on the last day of it, after the conference is over, okay. uh, if it's somewhere that I've partnered with, then there'll be a PubConf and everybody will go to this bar. And then some of the speakers from that conference might be up on stage again, but you won't see these talks recorded anywhere. Like this will be just them being silly and making fun of themselves, making fun of their expertise, making fun of their profession. Got um, it. Just, Got just it. laughing and having a good time. All right. So it's like a, I don't know, a bonding experience, end of show, f fun thing. Uh, all right. I'm, so. I'm into it. Well, I think you inadvertently hit on a great marketing slogan for a website or for, I'm sorry, for a conference is uh, you won't learn anything at this conference. Like I want to go to more <laughs> conferences that there were, they're like, yep. But not you won't learn anything here. That's perfect. I'm like I'm in. Yep. I just like I'm I'm intrigued when I see that. I'm like I already want to go. So that's yeah. We're not going to teach you anything. You're that, just going to have a good time. <laughs> that is fantastic. All right. Well, I'd ask you when the next one is, but I don't know. Times are different now. Hopefully one day. Probably not in 2020. Unfortunately. All right. Well, I was going to say hopefully one day we'll all be back at conferences and we'll be doing a pub comps soon enough. So, okay. Well, I know you know. Um, 
you started track chess, but let's go way back in time. So, you know, what I always like to hear the story. So how did you get into tech? Like, when did you discover technology was something interesting to you? And like, kind of what was your path into making a profession? Um, my path into tech, I think, was uh, not all that uncommon. Uh, it came in the form of I wanted to play video games in the 90s. Right. And uh, playing video games in the 90s was actually not that easy to do unless you knew something about how computers worked and how networks worked and how to play, like, get an operating system set up and your video drivers working and how to make the freaking sound blaster work and how to talk over what the heck is UDP anyway and how does it work. You just had to understand a lot about technology in order to play video games with your friends back then. Um, and that was my you know, core motivation. I really didn't care that much about the tech itself. I just wanted to play Doom on a network. I was going to say, friends. that sounded a lot like... Uh... Duke Nukem or Doom? That was a time yep. where like, you, you had to, uh, <laughs> you know, like if you're old enough, you had to run like the serial cables between the computer and it was like yep. nobody had a we, network. I, I had a coaxial token ring. Yeah, well, there I you go. Wow. wow. You were the talk yeah. of the neighborhood right there, my I friend. Know. It, was, it, was, it was a fancy thing. Um, we, uh, a friend of mine from high school, we had uh, dumpster dived and pulled out some very old computers very old at the time. I mean, they were what, like 386s, I think. Um, we pulled them out and got the like cobbled enough of them together to get three working computers off of that, plus the one that was actually, you know, my family's computer. Got the four wired together, and then we could play two on two Duke Nukem in my basement, and that yes. was like the pinnacle of our achievement there. Yeah, no, I listen. I I think uh, you know Doom and Duke Nukem. That was I played that quite a bit. And just just the level of effort. And we had these long, long serial cables just running around in this apartment in college. It was just, I don't know. It's like you look back on it, how ridiculous it was, but there was just no notion of like an Ethernet network that you could set up at home. Like it just didn't even exist. I don't know. I don't even remember talking about it. And then I remember when I got out of college, I was in this uh, boot camp, uh, like a software boot camp. And then that was my fondest memory. It was like, oh my gosh, we had a network and we played so much uh, Duke Nukem. <laughs> I've never been killed more times in my life than this this one person. He was so good at it. I was just like, <laughs> I knew right away. There was no professional gaming then, but I knew right away. I didn't have what it took. I would. I was getting headshots from like, I never even saw it most of the time. So it was, it was yeah. good. All right, well, that's good. So you decide to get into uh, technology. You, you make your way into it. Now, I was looking at your background. I think you kind of came in, I think it's a little bit interesting. I mean, I think other people have done it, but it looked like you kind of even started your career mostly in operations before kind of getting into software development. So like, how'd you get into operations and then kind of, how did you transition yourself from, from, I don't know, I guess we call it SRE now, but like back in the day from ops all the way into development, what was the story there? Yeah. So that I did start in, in ops. So that was, uh, my first job out of college was in ops, and I kind of just fell into that that world, uh, managing um, Windows networks and Linux networks. And uh, uh, I fell into a project that was like this large scale migration from an old uh, Novell network, uh, old Novell netware system um, way back in the day. Uh, to a Microsoft Active Directory and Exchange system, which is you know a very boring way of how you know giant companies manage their email and users. Um, but this project required me to travel a whole lot for basically a year and a half. And so I'm coming out of college and I'm like, hey, this company will pay you to basically live out of hotels and go where like go to all these other places. Um, for a year and a half, you just have to like manage Windows servers to, and you know do this migration. Uh, and that sounded like a pretty good deal to me. So I took that job and kind of fell into ops for a long time after that. Uh, I didn't really make it into development until uh, a couple of years after that project had kind of fit, uh, pushed through where I became really bored with the operations kind of world and found that the most exciting thing that I was doing, most exciting to me, was when I'd get to like write new scripts, like scripts to automate boring tasks or check on things or whatever. Um, and I slowly moved into doing more and more of that until I had the opportunity to transition into a software development team. Nice. So were you kind of a self-taught developer? Did you kind of already have the background in programming or did you just acquire the skills as you went along? How, how'd that work? 
Well, when I was in college, I did have a computer science degree, so I knew the basics of of it. Like I'd, I'd done the basic um, software software engineering courses and stuff like that. And then, as an operations person, I had spent a lot of time like writing scripts in uh, Visual Basic and Bash and uh, Perl and various different things to get different jobs done. Um, but I hadn't really done uh, like enterprise software development, like using unit testing and using source control and using all of those sort of things. So those all came um, kind of on the job training over over a matter of a couple of years to like figure out how, how that really works and how those things really came together. Nice. Well, I think we all, it doesn't matter what your background is until you get to the real world. <laughs> Until yeah. you get to the enterprise, it's all fun and games. Until you get to the enterprise, um, we'll also noticed in your background that you know it looks like you progressively took on like some project management, gotten into the agile, got into managing teams and people. Like was all that all happening at the same time, or was that sort of like the next thing after being a software developer for a while? Were you like, did you decide to like move up and try to manage a team? How'd that work? Yeah, so I was a I was a software developer for a number of years. Um, and I'd built a couple of projects and I had some success at that and, and things were going pretty well. Um, and uh, I got, I just kept falling into these opportunities to lead bigger, bigger groups of people. Um, uh, so for a while, I, I did a project management a couple of times. Uh, I actually did not like project management uh, in isolation uh, sure. because I found it was just too far away from the tech. Like, uh I need the tech to make things real in my mind. And it's what I ultimately enjoy working on. And so if I get too far away from it, I get stressed and kind of unhappy. Mm -hmm. And so if you, if you looked at my background, like there is this arc where like I started in tech, I tried some different tech things, and then I went to non-tech for a while and, and then I came back. And that coming back was kind of a realization about what I want is that um, going into the management kind of track of things uh, was not enjoyable for me. And so I worked my way back into being fundamentally about technology. Um, I, I did, I've had quite a few like leadership roles, but it's always been where I can still devote 25% or more of my time to actually working with technology. Gotcha. Well, it's good. I mean, sometimes you got to, you know, it's like, I say this all the time, especially when people are younger, it's like, sometimes you just got to do jobs to learn that you don't like them. So, um, right. so it's good. Right. I mean, and then, and then what you said before is like not to get caught up in, um, don't get caught up in like what other people or what, I don't know, whatever society, whatever that means. Like sometimes people always feel like, well, the only way to succeed is to manage people, move up. It's like, well, one, that's usually not true. And two, if you're miserable doing it, like stop, <laughs> just don't do right. that anymore. So, but now you did that, at some point. Sometimes mm -hmm. that's true in a given organization, but maybe that's just not the organization for you. If there's no track to get to, to grow in you know acme company wherever you are right now then maybe acme company is not the place for you maybe maybe you should try it and find somewhere else because there's lots of organizations that allow you to grow in technology roles and if you can't find one you can always go out onto your own and do your own thing yeah. there's plenty of room to grow being independent that's true there are pl plenty of jobs out there well at some point along the way here it looks like you decided to get a little bit more education so i'm gonna i'm gonna try to read this whole the name of this degree here see if i get it right <laughs> so you got a master of science management of technology degree which yep. i i don't know i mean it seemed, i I've, i would equate it a little bit with an mba but like why did you decide to go back and get it and how is it actually different than an mba it is not different than an MBA. So <laughs> done. Um, Perfect for for people who, who who haven't read my like resume or whatever. Ask me. You know, uh, I tell them I have an MBA because it's easier to explain and they know what it is. It's um, within like what an MBA is. As I understand it, there isn't a way to have an engineering focus with an MBA. Like you can have an accounting focus, you can have a legal focus, you can have a uh, management focus, but there's no good way to have an engineering focus because MBA, the, the schools that usually give you an MBA don't, don't really have engineering practices. And so uh, the management of technology degree um, is, a, is a thing that I think two or three dozen schools around the country offer um, that is trying to be that. It is trying to be an MBA with an engineering focus. 
And so three quarters of the curriculum are exactly what an MBA is. It, it was taught, like mine is from the University of Minnesota. So it was taught by the professors from the Carlson School of Business. But the other quarter of courses um, are different. And they're about um, uh, IT, managing R&D, uh, engineering process uh, and life cycle, um, forecasting and, uh, or like technology forecasting, um, other, other things that are more about, uh, the kind of challenges that you would run into if you were to be a CTO of a, of an, of an organization or a CIO of an organization, that's kind of what their focus is. Okay. Gotcha. So, so this sort of brings us, I think, to like an interesting career decision for yourself. So you, you worked some corporate jobs, worked in ops, worked as a software developer, like you got some the the official uh, management degree here but at some point right it looks like you decided you're going to go it alone you're going to become an independent consultant so take me through this process like (laughs) how did you decide to do that and i i'm going to speak for the audience here i think sometimes people view it as um, can be a very scary thing right to like leave a quote-unquote secure w-2 payment uh, um, salary job for you know for going out and finding your own business so what was your journey? Why did you decide to sure. do that? All right. So I'm going to take you way back to the year 2008. That was uh, the year that Todd uh, enrolled in this master's program. And 2008, Todd, was had been a developer for a few years and was having some success at it. He was getting opportunities to be in more and more leadership roles. And I saw that... Um, I thought that my career trajectory, the only way for me to to get where I or to to grow was going to be to go into management, to crawl my way up through middle management in corporate America, and then maybe someday run an IT organization or a software engineering organization. And that was what my goals were at the time. The program uh, for school was two years. And so in those two years, Academic, I was going to school and working at the same time. But in those two years, I had, um, I learned a lot about how, you know, the internals of business and finance and all of those sort of things work through school. And I got some practical opportunities to be a project manager and have some people reporting to me and, and do that sort of thing. And by 2010, when the program was done, I had learned two very important lessons, which I would actually say are uh, the most important thing I got out of, uh, well, probably some of the most important career decisions I ever made, which is first, I don't like leadership without tech. That, that I learned from my practical experience of being of doing those jobs, is I didn't like them. I wasn't, I don't feel like I was good at them. I couldn't focus on the things that needed to be the most important. Um, I needed the technology to ground it for me and make things feel real. And when I relied 100% on other people to do all of the technology, um, I couldn't understand. I wasn't wasn't very effective at that. The other lesson, which was probably the biggest thing I got out of the grad school program, is that everybody's just making it up as they go. I went into the program thinking that there was there was a plan like there are really smart people who like are getting this thing together and like know how the business works, know how the economy works, know how the country works. And being that I didn't know how all those things worked, I didn't belong playing in those circles. Right. But the more I learned about it, the more it came down to everybody's just kind of making it up as they go along. There's a handful of processes that people are copying and just stamping it out to like make this system run. And when people start a business, it's not like they have a um, they have a unique knowledge into how the economy works. No, they're just kind of they have an idea and they're just kind of making it up as they go. And seeing all of these very successful people that that at the core of it, they're just you know they're just make it like. Uh, they're just making up how to get things done until they figure it out. They didn't come in like understanding how the whole picture was going to work was empowering to me of like, well, I mean, I can figure it out as I go. 
Why, why can't I just start something? And so by the time I got to the end of that, that two-year span, by the time 2010 came around, I had, I had changed my career decisions on what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be in corporate America anymore um, because I didn't think I would ever be, be in a position where I would have enough control to make the decisions that I'd want to make. Um, and so I decided to go independent, and I wasn't scared to do it anymore because I didn't feel like there was some something that I was missing. There wasn't I, – I didn't feel like I just didn't understand something about how the world worked. It's that nobody understands how it works. We're all just kind of faking it until we make it, and that's okay. Yeah, no, I love the story. I mean, this is a phrase I, I I'm fond of saying is uh, is just nobody knows anything, right? That's I, yeah. I just think about that all the time, and I think um, a lot of times, uh, especially when I think about my younger self, like I don't know. Sometimes I think people think of it as like imposter syndrome, or just you know, just kind of general. Uh, all, it's almost like a sign of um, you know people always talk about is like your own knowledge is maybe to know the limits of it, but sometimes that's a limiting factor, right? When you're like, well, somebody else knows more. And I often think of uh, structured education, you know, sort of like beats this into it. Cause like when you're, when you're young, especially when you're young, right, you start go to school and like the teachers do know more, right. They know a lot more and they kind of give mm-hmm. you guidance. And then maybe you go off to college and your professors know a lot and you find some advisors or some people helping you and they're giving you advice and they seem like they know a lot. And so, so there's kind of this feeling, especially when I think when you enter the, the job market or corporate America is like, well, it's just like that. Like all these people know. And it's like, no, at that point, like, it's kind of like, it's kind of the opposite. Almost the people that have been working longer, no less. Right. If you start talking to yeah. people, it's just like, um, so it is, I often think to myself, it's like being someone that can really grasp that early in their careers at a distinct advantage. Like once you kind of feel just what you said before, like, Nobody knows anything like, and maybe you just, some people I think are just born that way. They just kind of get it right away. I think other people work for just a couple years and they kind of realize it. And I think other people, like I put myself in this category, you work for a lot longer and it takes you a while to like really figure out that nobody knows anything and you can just do it yourself too, right? Just go figure it out. So, so good for you. So you, you decide to become an independent consultant. Like what, like, how'd you get your first uh, customer? Like, what did you do? Um, so I decided to become independent and at first I was, uh, just kind of taking nights and weekends job. I decided that I was going to build a, uh, a software consulting company. Um, and I took jobs where I could find them, where I was getting started. Um, so the first jobs that I had were, I was building websites for people. Like, uh, I built a half dozen WordPress sites for various small companies, I would get referrals from like friends and family or whatever, um, who, you know, maybe they were already consultants and they had some overload work that they would throw my way, that sort of thing. And so I I was doing that for a little while uh, before I really quit my job and trying to get active in the community and participating in a lot of user groups and stuff like that. And it was through that participation that I met uh, a guy named uh, uh, David Hussman who was a really big name in the Agile community and had a software consulting practice called DevJam. And Dave and I hit it off. Uh, things like we got along. He was fun. Um, he, he taught me a lot of, of, of things. And one of his biggest clients as a, as a, as a larger consultancy was uh, Thomson Reuters, which is a giant worldwide company. But in the area that I'm in, Thomson Reuters has their legal professional services division, um, which is part of what used to be the company called Thompson, which actually makes all kinds of like legal textbooks is kind of like the biggest player in like legal research and education. Um, and so the, I, through that, uh, they were scoping or ramping up some really big projects. They needed a lot of people. And, uh, David asked if I wanted to join, um, if I wanted to join that project and how that worked at that time was uh, his company didn't actually have any employees. He just subcontracted it all through to other people who all were also independents. And so everybody had their own company and everybody just kind of got paid hourly and it was all this pass through thing. And they helped me get um, a lot of the basic foundations of that set up to be successful going forward. And so I really credit DevJam a lot with, uh, with that move. 
Well, so true. I, I've heard similar stories. You know, it's so funny how like one consulting company is just really a front for like a whole bunch of people on 1099 contracts paying themselves or paying each other. And then that like branches off into more consulting companies. So I don't know. It seems like seems like the best way to start it, right, is find some stuff and don't don't take on a, a regular job, right? Just become a consultant to a consultant. And then eventually, right, you can just yeah. go, go start talking to your customers directly. So good. Exactly. And that it also reinforces that idea of, of nobody knows anything. Like Thompson didn't want to hire people. So they, you know, hire this other company that just passes through to other companies. Like there's so many levels of middlemen involved just taking their cut in in working a corporate job that this just really made it like super clear that everybody's just kind of, figuring things out for themselves and injecting themselves into the value pipeline somewhere. And, uh, and that, Hey, if I, I, if I can find a place I can make, I can make my money. That's right. Well, I think there's, there's some advice there that I think people that are trying to do it themselves, I think in some ways, like it's not so much work, but if you can like go find, just like you did, like go find someone that's being a consultant that needs help. And then you just ask them questions. You just say, well, how did you start your company? Well, how do you do your taxes? Mm-hmm. How do you do? Because they'll just tell you. They're like, oh, talk to this accountant or fill this form out. And then, then suddenly, right, it kind of gives you, I, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, mentorship or just like the basics. It's just sort of like, and then you're like, oh, it's a pretty easy process. Like once you kind of get into that world, like once you kind of, and everybody has like a little team is what I find is like, oh, this is the guy that helps me with my taxes. And this is the guy that, mm-hmm. this is the lawyer mm-hmm. I used. And, you know, it's like a whole little world, a network world. So once you're in there, you're like, oh, this is actually pretty simple. All I had to do is ask. So, um, yeah. so definitely do it. Right, now, when did you um, get into JavaScript in a big way? Was this something you've been doing for a long time or were you picking this up? in your consulting? Like when did that become like your thing? Well, so I've been doing JavaScript for a number of years at this point, not exclusively, but I was doing a lot of web dev projects. And as we all know, if you want to write something that's interactive on the web browser, JavaScript's really the only game in town. You can't like it's, you can't just pick another language and say, I want to write, you know, Perl in, in and run it in Chrome. Like that just doesn't work. You got to write JavaScript. Um, so I'd been doing dabbles of JavaScript along with other things, um, but it wasn't my primary focus. Like I would do a lot of .NET at this time, um, uh, and then I'd have like little bits of JavaScript that I would use to automate stuff. Not a, not dissimilar than what most web developers would do, I would say. But uh, it was through this, a series of, of different projects, um, some of them at Thomson Reuters, uh, during the early days of, of what a lot of people refer to as like this JavaScript renaissance where Angular and React and Backbone and Knockout, uh, these libraries all kind of started and started gaining a lot of mental traction of the idea of we're going to write our whole application on the client side and just call these RESTful APIs on the back end. And that became a really trendy architecture. And uh, a number of projects that I was on wanted to do that trendy architecture. And and so I kind of cut my teeth on on these patterns and how to do it through those projects and how they kind of fell apart. And this this actually led really well into uh, starting Track.js because all of these projects were were reinventing so much of what the browser already gives you. Right when these these early days of JavaScript where uh, you had to use like. Uh, the hashtags or hash fragments in your query string and the bat are in the in your URLs in order to have different pages. I use air quotes around pages because they weren't really pages. They were just different different metaphors that we would use. And the back button was always broken and the page was always full of a hundred spinners. And I'm sure you all remember what the internet was like around the you know 2000. 11 time frame where this was just all the rage and everybody wanted to do this. But you know what? Those apps all sucked. They were terrible. (laughs) They were awful. They broke in all kinds of weird, unpredictable ways because none of us are as good at re-implementing the browser as we think we are. And so there's tons of errors in all of these pages and it was really cryptic to understand them. And so through all of the projects that I was a part of, we would end up building these instrumentation um, services so that we could see when does the client side application break? How did the user get there? What, what was going on at the time of this error? What was the stack trace of the error? What was the user doing? What browser were they using? All these other bits of, bits of information 
that you didn't get. Like all of the tooling was really mature around understanding when a server would blow up, but nobody really had the concept of understanding when the browser blew up. And so we were building this ourselves. And I must have implemented an error monitoring subsystem a half a dozen times for different consulting clients as part of building up a JavaScript application. And after doing it so many times, um, it started to become clear that like, hey, hey, everybody kind of needs, needs a way to see when their JavaScript breaks. And JavaScript isn't going away. This pattern of client-side applications is just becoming more and more popular. Maybe we should create this service that is standalone so that anybody, any client that we work for could just drop this in and use it and not have to like pay me X many dollars per hour to recreate it for them. Um, and so we that's were... what led you so is that that's the, basically the beginnings of like, hey, we want to start a company. We call it TrackJS. We're going to focus in on that. Is that the, the founding that's story the, there? Yeah, that's the founding story. Like uh, it was a handful or a handful of other consultants who were doing the same kind of thing. I'd worked with them at different, different contracts, different projects. And um, I pitched the idea to them one day that like, hey, we've all like done this like multiple times. Uh, we kind of see what the best practices are and, and what kind of information you'd want to know. Maybe we should just build this kind of once in a really abstract way that that any of us could just use it. Uh, it. It didn't even start, like the first pitch wasn't even like, hey, let's make a software company that we can sell this on. It was more of like, how do we become more attractive as consultants to be hired? What well, we had this common library that we could all use and just like whatever. That was kind of the original idea. Um, but it quickly kind of became clear that this was valuable way beyond our consulting life, that this is a thing that could be used by any company in the world and add a ton of value to them. Um, and that we could eventually stop consulting and work exclusively on building and servicing this product. Yeah, I, I feel like this is the story of like 80% of enterprise software startups. It's it's like, the, you know, it's always something like, hey, we were consulting, we were doing this over and over and over again, and we finally found, you know, really what it is is just a, a common problem, right, that people are having mm -hmm. and we can transition. So, I mean, that's, and I also think, you know, people talk about MVP and all this other stuff, um, you know, but to your point about no one does anything, I, I always think, whatever you want to call it is like start consulting and then just identify the same problem you see across, I don't know, five, 10 different projects. And then that's probably a pretty good indication that yep. you now that's a, a good business problem. And luckily for you, like someone paid you to find that, right. They paid you to kind of discover that problem. So, so you start track JS, you are the, let's see, what is your official title here? You're the president and, and co-founder, are you the CEO too? Or do you have like, how, how you, did you guys set it up? Uh, well, so there are, are three of us, who work on TrackJS. Mm -hmm. um, there has been as many as four, like we've had a, like a little bit of shuffle on membership, but I've been uh, myself and another guy named Eric Brandis are the two kind of co-founders who's been with it since the beginning. Uh, being that we are such a small company, we typically do not use the C titles mm -hmm. only because like it's a three person company. Like, like nobody's little, the chief, nobody's bit, the uh, chief of, of anything. Oh, come on, um, man. Just give, give everyone a C title. There you go. <laughs> Um, my, my role in the company, uh, by president is that like, I am, you know, w when there's a form or a tax or something that needs to come down and like, who is the ultimate head that, you know, heads will roll if something messes up, that's my name on those, on those documents. Um, I was the one who originally pitched the idea. Uh, and so I'm, I also take some responsibility for like the day-to-day -day business objectives of the company kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, the, structure of the app and the operations of the app is a shared kind of responsibility. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, have you guys, uh, are you a hundred percent self-funded? Are you trying to raise money? Have you taken venture capital or angel investments? Like, how's that work? <laughs> so, so there's a little bit of a story on this. If we have time to talk about it. Um, when we had realized that this was going to be a company and this wasn't just going to be a consulting like add on play, uh, we had like, we were very naive. Like we, we had, we knew nothing at all, but you know, all of these, you know, startup companies, they all would go and get millions of dollars of VC capital and, and just, you know, become unicorn companies so fast. 
And we were like, well, that we want that to be us. We're unicorns. We're smart. We can do this. So we spent um, a couple of months on the front end. Uh, like we had a, a beta of this thing working. We had a couple of beta customers. We might have even had a little bit of revenue at this point. And we spent some time building a prospectus, a pitch deck. And we worked our networks and we got uh, we got some meetings with investors. And we we're like, yeah, this is gonna happen. This is good. This is gonna be a thing. And okay. I did I did all the pitch meetings, uh-huh. and and I came away from them hearing basically the same message, which was like, this is a great idea. You guys are a good team. You guys should totally do this. But we're not sure if this is going to be big enough for us to put our money in. You need to wait. You need to grow this till you have uh, $10,000 in recurring revenue. So you're getting $10,000 every month in recurring customer payments. And then come back and see us. Okay. And, mm-hmm. and, and that was hugely disheartening for us because we're like, that's bullshit. We don't need that. We have $10,000. What do I need you for? Like we were, we were, we had the wrong idea about what this, about what venture capital was for. And it was not for this kind of business. Um, I don't think venture capital does well funding developer tool companies because they're never going to grow like Facebook grows. They're never going to grow like Stripe grows. They're never going to grow and be like these huge monoliths Um, because it's, it's just too niche. All software exists in their own little niches. And uh, there's too many. The barrier to entry is too low. There's too much competition. Um, And so I don't think venture capital does very well there. And so we didn't take any um, because they wouldn't give it to us when we wanted it. And then a few months later, when we hit hit their target, hit that $10,000, there must be like networks that, that the VC people like talk like their own back channels mm-hmm. because there was at some point in the TrackJS growth cycle where we had customers, we had some big names and people were starting to talk about us. And then, then they were all trying to get time on my calendar. Like they all wanted a piece now, like they all wanted to, you know, see if we were raising around and, and whatnot. And, uh, and we didn't, we didn't do any of it because at that point we'd already, hit the point where our company was sustainable. We saw a growth. We could we could focus on building our product and building like servicing our customers and not have to worry about what the VC board is going to want. Yeah. Um, not have to worry that we're not going to hit a growth target and get Aqua hired out to Microsoft or whatever. Yeah. Um, that we could we could just build this company and let it be ours. Um, and so that's what we've done. We have still not taken any outside funding. We don't intend to ever take any outside funding. We're just like we're profitable and completely self-sustaining, and we can just focus on the things that we think are most important. Well, I think that's that's a great story. I think a lot of people benefit from hearing that. I mean, my own experience has shown very similar is that you know when you really need a VC, right? They generally don't want to invest because they, you know, and I think it's always funny because I think a lot of times the popular culture or mainstream media or things like that, they'll talk about how the venture capitalists are taking all these chances and they're like forward thinking. And it's like, when you really sit down with a lot of people, it's like, it's not really like that at all. It's they're actually very conservative. Like they either want you to, to your point, have some um, recurring revenue and be like, you know, a, a profitable or at least a company that has money coming in or they want to just be able to bucket you and be like, Oh, you're going to be just like a peer compare uh, competitor, right? They, they feel like this market has been validated. So like when you bring them something that's relatively new or doesn't have much money, um, they they usually have nothing to say. They don't want to be involved, which is, I get it. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily fault them for it, but it's uh, it's, it maybe be better if people were, uh, if they were more honest, like, Hey, don't even bother <laughs> coming to us unless you have this, right? Or or you've invented something, like you invented cold fusion or something. It's like, yeah, sure, show up. They'll they'll have plenty of money. When the value proposition is so clear that it's immediately obvious to anyone that it's going to be successful, you know, then they'll want to be involved. But uh yeah. some speculative idea, it's, you know, it's really for the most part it's it's on you. It's they're not going to help you. It's been my experience. So good good to hear that, you know, I guess uh, you've had a similar story. So all yeah. right, so this brings us to so TrackJS 
you're self-funded today. You're, are you guys doing any consulting anymore? Or are you a hundred percent focused in on your service? Like what? How, we don't, how's... we don't do any consulting anymore. Okay. So the, the three people who are, uh, the three members of track JS all have, you know, their own consulting business, mm-hmm. right? Um, sure. but no, but nobody is actively taking any contracts anymore Got because, it. uh, track JS is, is set up a little bit like a legal partnership almost like think of a law firm where you have a bunch of different practicing attorneys mm-hmm. and they like get paid based on the number of like the amount of time and dollars they bring in. Mm-hmm. Uh, track JS is kind of like that. We're three consultants that, uh, worked on track JS sometimes and would do consulting sometimes. And then as track JS became a bigger and bigger part of all of our, income, we did fewer and fewer contracts because we could dedicate more and more time to it. And so at this point, all of the members of TrackJS only work on TrackJS. All right. Awesome. So you are full blown. You're living the dream, man. You're just sitting there collecting all your money on your beautiful SaaS-based <laughs> service. We're going to make it sound like that. All right. So let's do this. Thing. Let's do some free consulting here. Let's walk through. I'm going to, we're going to do a project together in you know the next uh, few minutes, and then we're going to figure out how TrackJS helps us. Okay. So let's say I walk in the door. Right. And I want yeah. I'm, I'm just, you know, your, your business, uh, business owner of something. I want to build something that, like takes online orders. Got this great business We're we're doing really well, but you know, we've got to make the transition to, to being online. Uh, I've, I've already gone out, I've hired the designer, got my, all my requirements figured out. I got my nice high fidelity mock-ups figured out all the color scheme. So now I come to you and I say, Hey, I want you to build this out. And I just, uh, and I've got enough experience to know it's like, I don't know. I want it to be web friendly. Also, you know, want to be really mobile friendly. Uh, I've read about like, I could build my own native mobile app. I could build this progressive web application. I could do a responsive website. So, so how do you guide me through? Like, what would you take me through to, to decide, you know, which of these technologies are something different that I should use to actually build out my, uh, my beautiful online order taking site? It's a great first question. And I don't think it's a technology question at all. Um, when you're trying to think of like, do you build a native mobile app or do you build a, a web app? Um, you need to think of where are your customers? Are your customers expecting to have to install an application on their phone in order to interact with you? Or do they just want to go to your website? What what is What is the expectation? If it's the kind of thing like, like pizza, I'm not installing the Domino's app. I don't care. I'm never going to install your goddamn app. <laughs> I'm just going to go. I'm just Poor I'm Domino's. Just gonna, it's just, it's just, I don't have that kind right. of it's relationship. Not a, it's not a strong kind of relationship. Company, I get you. Right. Mm-hmm. I have, I have the Amazon app installed. Yes. I, I want to shop. I want to interact. I have my interaction with them is much more complicated and ongoing than ordering takeout food, which is once in a while. And, and, um, and not that deep of an interaction. It's like, I give you money, you send food, that, that's it. And so think about that interaction. You don't need an app just to have an app. Do your customers go searching for an app to install or do they just land on your website? And that's where, that's that first decision. Now then based on that, you can choose what to build it. In. And regardless of whether you're going to package it as an app or a website, I would say today, I mean, 85% of what you need to do, you can do with a progressive web app running inside of a shell, right? So you could package it to run in the iPhone or the Apple App Store or the Android App Store or whatever, but it's really just a wrapper around a web page. You can get most of what you need done. Again, not all of it, right? It kind of depends on what's in those high fidelity mockups that you laid out. Because if you're expecting a really deep interaction with your customer base and like all kinds of like location services and camera interactions and that sort of thing, then then you're really kind of forcing yourself down that that app direction with those requirements. But for, you know, let's say let's say we're building a pizza takeout online order thing, just build a JavaScript progressive web app. I'd say that's more than enough for what you need to do. Right. I would even go further. This is my, like, this is my, like, uh, my answer to this question is something like, well, just start out, just build the progressive app app to start. Right. And then, and then just maybe not even like wrap it up and put it in the app store. Just get that going. Just get it like, you know, kind of working, start showing it to people. And then if you want, wrap it up, throw it in one of the app stores. And then if you get enough customers, right, 
they will, they'll tell you, right? Like you'll, you'll start to like, you know, get some interaction and people will, will give you some insight as to like, you know, yeah, I really would prefer this to be like a really a native mobile app because I often do find myself kind of split. Sometimes people have taken what is clearly a progressive web app or, you know, just what you said, they wrap it in a shell and they make it an app, but then I get the app and I'm, 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 I want, I want it to be like a real app. You know what I mean? Like I want them to have taken some time to actually do it. So I think there is though, but I always feel like that's a success problem, right? If you have enough interest and then people are using it and they wish it was a native iOS app and had all the native iOS controls, like you're probably at, that's like a great problem to have, right? Then you're just yeah. at the position of like, well, can I afford to maintain both? Right. Cause that's going to be your big decision point. Um, but you know, but most of the time I think people just, you know, they just talk about it and they never do anything. So <laughs> that's why mm-hmm. I always say like, just do the progressive web app. You'll, you'll be fine. All right. So we're doing a progressive web app. We're going to follow your advice here. So this is something I face a lot in my current job and all of my jobs is then people come in and then they, I don't know. They just talk about all these different frameworks. I just, I cannot keep up. There's Angular, React, Vue. I mean, just goes on and on and on. And then somebody's in the corner and they're like kind of writing their own. And it's just, it's just crazy. I mean, it's just nuts. And I, and I'm always thinking to myself, well, you know, I just want a progressive web app. Okay. But I don't want you also coding me into some corner. I don't want you using something that's going to get us way off in, in the deep end. And we're never going to be able to maintain this thing. So like what should a business owner, like how much of these frameworks do I need to know about? And like, there's just some shortcuts I can take, or there's just like a couple that I should just kind of like stay within these three. And then, then I can, I feel safe, feel like my code's going to live for a while. I'm not going to be painted into a weird corner. Like, how do you guys decide this when you're doing new projects? I'm going to, I'm going to be kind of blasphemous here as mm-hmm. a, as a JavaScript person and say none of them. Well, oh. Rend- Wow. Render wow. render your HTML on the server side as God intended. Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> okay. So you're just none of this, huh? You're just do- No. So I would say um I'd say 80% of people who start a client-side uh web app, client-side rendering app shouldn't have been a client-side rendered app. It should have been a server-side rendered app that you had a handful of interesting like transitions to. One of my favorite patterns is something called PJAX, um, which has been around forever. It's been implemented in all kinds of different frameworks as different things. I think in Rails, it's called TurboLinks. In, uh, in .NET, it's called something else. I don't remember. The Essentially, is you render HTML, like your page, on the server. And then when the user does something, when they interact with it, when they click on the link, rather than letting the browser do the whole thing where it like tears down the DOM and navigates and rebuilds, you just intercept that click, you fire an Ajax call at your server, and you get the next page, and you swap out the body tag. It feels just as fast, if not faster, than client-side rendering for those transitions. And uh, because it doesn't have to reparse the head of the document and it doesn't refresh the assets, it just changes the main page. But you still get all of the benefits of having server-side controlled logic. The server is faster at putting that HTML together than your client is, and it will always be. Like the the speed advantages you got from client-side weren't horsepower, they were in terms of rendering fewer things. It was in drawing fewer bits as the application changed. And you can get a lot of those same benefits from using a PJAX pattern. Now, okay. you're still going, you still have client-side stuff that happens, right? Like there's still like more complicated controls that you need to build and stuff like that. And personally, um, uh, I've used like, I've used Angular, I've used React, I've used Backbone, I've used Preact, I've used Vue, I've used Svelte. Um, like, they're fine. They're all of them. They're fine. Like right now on my latest project, we're using Preact, React, which is, you know, a smaller subset of React um, because it's faster and, and lighter and it does what we need it to do. Um, but personally, I think that one of the biggest problems um, that more enterprise organizations have is that they're obsessed with the idea of reuse and standardization. They're obsessed with it. They love it. And they try and come in and say, all of our apps will use Angular. All of our apps will use React. We are going to build a def- like our, our standard React bundle with all of our helper methods kind of thing. 
And I think that's the wrong approach. They're thinking of their client-side apps like they think about standardizing their APIs. And I think the client UI is disposable. I think you should build it in whatever your team wants to build it in right now and expect to throw it away in two years. Don't overbuild it. Don't super genericize it. UIs aren't that hard to build. Focus on getting the APIs right so that you can consume that data and put it together. And then you can swap out um, a server-side rendered UI with a client-side rendered UI with a progressive web app. You can, you can swap out that user interaction layer as the trends of what, what's popular in technologies change without having to, to wrestle over these you know, massive standard library things that you get from, from some organizations that try and over-standardize these things. The client UI, the client side and user interaction is still thrashing in terms of what we think are good and standard patterns for design and usability. And so don't lock yourself in and overwork um, to try and make something the one true way. All right, I like it. You're taking um, taking some interesting stances here. So I'm going to make sure. I hey, everyone should keep listening because I'll, I'll tell you how to get a hold of Todd if you agree or disagree with him later. He's on the internet. So okay, so we're I'm on we're, the internet. Come fight me. We're gonna uh, we're not going to use anything. We're not going to use any of these frameworks. That's what we decided. I like it. I, I almost was as you were talking there. I was thinking like that is an interesting way to think of uh, the client side or the UI. It's like it's more like fashion. It's just going to change. Like it just changes all the time. So it's just like clothes or something. Like you can't just the fashion of them, right? You know, it's not, maybe they work, but like the fashion changes and maybe that's how we should think of UIs. It's like, Hey, it's just, you want your thing looking great. So, uh, it's your point about keep your APIs, uh, nice and well, uh, well-maintained, but just count on, count on the fashion of the UIs to change. So I like that idea. I don't, I don't know. I'll have to think about it a little bit more. I've definitely heard different contrarian views, but let's get on to the persistence then. So same thing. We're in the meeting. People like we decided we're not we're not gonna use these frameworks, but we have a beautiful website we're gonna build out. We gotta store this data somewhere. Somebody walks in, it's like there's like a, a MySQL database someone's using, and then someone walks in and talks about no SQL and we should just do everything and JSON and you know, and there's probably some other you know, unknown uh, database I've never heard of someone's bringing into the table and they want to use. So like what do you what do you recommend? How should we save all of this data? How do you make that decision? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I don't know. Uh, there's pros and cons on both sides. I've used uh, relational databases and I've used NoSQL databases. And what I find is that the, when you initially start on a NoSQL approach, it's because you are tired of all of the slowness and ceremony that goes in making sure all of your references are in place and that you can query and, and join everything and pull it all together. But as you build a application of, of size and you built it on NoSQL, pretty soon you've re-implemented those relationships and tying things together manually in code. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but you kind of undid some of the reasons why you abandoned the database to begin with. Um, NoSQL is really fast, it's really easy to get started, and sometimes that's the most important problem to solve, is you just need to get some paint on the canvas and get going. And NoSQL is great for that. But you're gonna end up writing a bunch of application code that's going to tie your orders together. So if you have an object in, in your NoSQL database called an order, or a document called an order, do you have everything about that in one document? Is there like one customer document that has all of their orders in it and all of their other things in it and it's just all linked? But it probably can't like contain the entirety of every product that they've ordered. They're probably a separate document somewhere called a product. And so somewhere you have a list of IDs on that customer record of what products they've bought and your application now has to do that relationship joining and, and ask that. And maybe that's fine. Maybe that's totally okay. But you haven't guaranteed referential integrity. So that means that that customer could have bought a product where you don't have that product listed anymore. And now you have to guarantee that you can handle those situations in your UI and that that's okay and that that's not a big deal. 
And for an online pizza ordering app, that's totally okay. You should just totally build a NoSQL database. It's not a big deal because nobody cares. If you're, if we're going to talk about building like taking money orders as a bank, then you should probably have a database with referential integrity because if something, you know, if they, if I say I sent a money order, but you don't have a, have a record for that money order in your database, something is really, really wrong. <laughs> yes. And, yeah. and it matters a whole lot. So it, it really, it really depends on what the constraints of your project and your team and your customer are on which one of these you should go with. But I think NoSQL databases are amazing and fast to work with. You just end up recreating a bunch of stuff before the project's done. Yeah. I, it's definitely, I mean, to your earlier point, like it's just the easiest way to get started. And so, you know, maybe that's not a great answer, but I feel like that's, I don't know that to me, that's, that's like 99% of the time. That's how most of these things start. Like wait until you need proof to yourself, right? H have so much success with your project that you need to, uh, to go get yourself an official yeah. quote unquote real database. I shouldn't yeah, say real the, database. I should just say relational database. <laughs> when if, but if the, if the first ticket or if the first task in your project is hook up a connection to Oracle relational database management, then the developer is just like, Oh my God, this is going to suck. And if that's <laughs> well, that the initial, true, right? <laughs> it's just the whole object relational mapping. It's just like, let me quit now. Can I just quit now and just go work on something else? So, all right. So we got our, uh, we got our application going and then, you know, at some point we have to run this somewhere. I'm going to probably put it up on the cloud. So what is your take? You know, this is the, I don't know, the billion dollar question, million dollar question. It's like, should we package all this up and run it on VMs? Should we be throwing it in containers? Should we go find a serverless platform we like? Like what's your f favorite deployment model that you're using with your customers today? I think there's two extremes here and they both have really good, um, uh, they, they both have, have really good reasons to use them. Um, on one side, you have serverless, which means I don't have to think about uh, the operating system. I don't need to think about my application. I can put the logic that needs to run centrally in like what AWS Lambda or Azure's or Google's or any, any of the, the cloud's things um, to run my logic when it needs to run. And the advantages are I have a lower kind of, um, I wouldn't even say that. The, the advantages are really about elasticity. If I can't predict how fast my service is going to be hit, and I don't know when, like, if there's going to be a sudden burst of orders, and I need to be able to fulfill them, and I need to guarantee that I can always fulfill them, and I'm willing to pay for that increased ramp up, serverless makes tons and tons of sense. Going across containers and load balancers, I would say a totally valid option in 2020 is you lease hardware directly in a data center. Because a lot of the advantages that are ascribed today to VMs and containers are actually advantages which is generic infrastructure automation. And the advances we've made in tools like Ansible and Chef and those sort of things to just normalize things. So I personally use a service called OVH uh, which is, I believe, a French company, but they have data centers in the United States and Canada and Europe um, where you can lease bare metal hardware in you know, their data center for ridiculously cheap. I can get a, a, a piece of hardware that can outclass any VM on any of the clouds for $180 a month. Like It'll just run circles around anything you can get from AWS. Okay. All right. It's, it is, I just, tell you, it is just so cheap. Todd, you're to going to get a lot of email after the show. <laughs> I mean, like so far we're not using any JavaScript framework and you now recommended I, I, not I'm using so, any hyperscale so, provider. Wow. I'm so blasphemous, but like, here, here's the thing. <laughs> this is a, this is the other extreme, right? Okay. So in this extreme, it is cheaper than using a cloud, but, but you do have no elasticity right? If I need to scale up, I have days of wait time, right? I, I'd have to like requisition another server. It could take up to 48 hours for it to be available or longer, depending on who your provider is. Um, and then I need to like run my infrastructure automation and stand up another, another box. So I have a much longer delay if I need to scale up. So in order to kind of combat that, you just have to oversubscribe. You have to buy more servers than you need and you have a higher 
kind of carrying cost. Mm -hmm. Um, There's another argument to be made kind of in between is what your operational cost is, right? Like if I own servers, people are going to say, yeah, Todd, but then you need to care about hardware. And like, what if the dim, like a memory slot goes out? And that's totally true. That is a hundred percent true. But I don't think that is any different than having a VM in a big cloud provider because some piece of software can break somewhere in the bowels of their infrastructure and it just stops working and you have no idea why. Um, personally, at TrackJS, we used to run inside of uh, VMs and a combination of VMs and serverless in Microsoft's uh, cloud. And we left to go to dedicated hardware and we saw higher operational times or wow. um, like higher availability when we, when, we, when, when we went to our own hardware. Mm-hmm. Because hardware today is really, really good. And if you run with a service that knows how to manage a data center really well, like I'm not saying you personally can manage a data center really well. I don't know, maybe you can, but I couldn't. I could not personally manage a data center very well. But I could pay OVH or Rackspace or any of dozens of other companies who probably do know how to manage their data center really well. And um, when we have had hardware issues and say lost a DIM, lost a, a, a memory module, it's replaced and back online in about 30 minutes. And so our load balancing can just handle that overage. And the cost that we pay to overbuy hardware uh, is still cheaper than the uh, value taxes you pay on being in the cloud, where it just costs more for the hardware to begin with. Our bill, when we migrated away, went to roughly 25% of what it was before, and we targeted 10% utilization on every box that we purchased. Okay. All right. Well, well, listeners, so you've, you've so heard it here I'm first. Just, Don't worry. <laughs> We're getting to where I'm, you can contact Todd. No, but yeah, I think you're right. I'm, I mean, I've seen... I'm just challenging. Like, if yeah. you don't need scale, if you don't need elasticity, you don't need those other things. Yeah. So I and think maybe, they, you, maybe you want to pay for the, the ease of use because you think that that serverless module is easier to use, in which case that's fine. Totally, go do that. For me, I think I understand how a dedicated server works. Maybe it's because I have an operational background. To me, that's easier to use and it's cheaper. I just don't get the elasticity. So that's, gotcha. that's my trade-off. All right, I like it. All right, we're going, we're going to get some trends here. Okay, well, let's come back. So we finished a wrap. It's going to be fantastically successful, but I need to uh, make sure it's working. So so tell me. So now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sign up for request metrics here. What am I getting? What exactly yeah. do I have to do, first of all? What do I have to do, and what am I getting? So request metrics is this new thing that we're working on. And so it's the TrackJS team. Um, earlier this year, we decided that um, TrackJS has been really successful, and it, it does a really good job at solving this problem of when I have a web application, when does it break in the hands of the end user? Like, when do we get a JavaScript error? When does a network request fail? When do all those sort of things happen? But what it doesn't really do a good job on, and what it was never really set up for, is to talk about uh, my application's working fine, but maybe it's running a little slower than it used to. Maybe my you know API has slowed down because I changed the database, or maybe this page has slowed down because this Twitter provider is really slow and crappy, or I don't know. Um, any any of a million reasons your application can slow down, and so that's what we set out to solve. Is like how do we how do we bring performance monitoring um, into this? Like give people a, a good tool for this. And we looked at what was available in the marketplace, and there's tons there's tons out there, as I'm sure many of your listeners know. Like you can get this that sort of thing from you know, New Relic and from Splunk and from, you know, dozens of the, the great big, you know, APM providers. But the problem that they all have is that one, it's usually really complex to understand their reports and what they mean. They usually require you to have like a bunch of training to even, you know, run the query you need to do to understand what's going on. And second, they're really expensive. And so if you're not in a a great big enterprise organization, maybe your team can't afford to have these tools to even know. And so that's kind of what we want request metrics to be. We're going to build a really simple way 
for you to understand how long do your pages take to load and how long does your API take to respond from the end user's perspective and tell you that sort of information in a way that any developer should be able to understand and digest, be intuitive with like what reports and alerts that we show up and come to you at a price point that any team could afford to start making their web page faster. And so that's what request metrics is, what we're shooting for. Um, it's actually still in construction right now. Unfortunately, I can't give you like a thing to go sign up for, but what we've been working on is during the development, we've recorded our conversations and our working, uh, our development sessions and produced a series of YouTube videos that's available. If you go to requestmetrics.com, you can see a link to them where you can see why did we go hardware? What conversations do we have about like uh, using our NoSQL database store? Um, why did we do all of these things? You can see the actual conversations that the team had that arrived at these conclusions and how we implemented the code to come together on this real product, uh, which I think is really interesting. All right, so we'll put a link to all those videos in uh, the show notes here and people can go watch it. So Quest Metrics coming soon, but TrackJS, right, is, is ready to go. If I want to monitor and log all my errors and see all of the see all the console stuff and problems like that's ready right i can do that i can go sign oh, yeah. up today right that, that's that's available for years uh we continue to add feature features and functionality to it but yeah trackjs.com you can drop in and we're running um due to the you know the economic shutdown and businesses plans have all changed we're running a 60-day trial right now so that you can spend two months of uh, whatever productivity time you feel like you have uh, trying to make your website better right now. Okay. All right. Well, that's good. There's some good stuff for us to do. So everyone should go check that out. And then, uh, Todd, I think, I think we need to ask this, especially on this episode. Uh, I think people are going to want to contact you. So where <laughs> on the intranets would uh, someone go if they want to? I don't know. Let's just hypothetically say they had a different opinion about JavaScript uh, JavaScript frameworks. Like, where would they contact you to express such an opinion? Well, if you want to contact me privately, uh, first, don't be a jerk. We all have different opinions, and, and none of you know that you're right. <laughs> um, you can email me. I'm Todd, T-O-D-D, at trackjs, T-R-A-C-K-J-S dot com. Super easy to get a hold of me. If you'd like to argue in public because you want to be seen by your followers as smarter than me, that's totally cool, too. I'm on Twitter at, at Todd H. Gardner. Uh, you should see my face out there. You can also find all of my work out at requestmetrics.com or trackjs.com. And occasionally I write a blog at uh, todd.mn. All right, fantastic. Okay, I will put all of those uh links in the show notes and people can definitely find you. And I think uh, you've definitely given me a lot to think about the show. I think, you know, it's some interesting answers, some things that I've not, not heard of in a while. So I really appreciate you being on the show today. I have been uncool with software development since 2008. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, congratulations. Well, listen for everybody else. Uh, this is the first time you've ever heard software defined talk. Well, Welcome. You can probably subscribe to the show right now in your podcast player. Uh, but if you want, you can also go out to our website, go to softwaredefinedtalk.com. There we've got uh, links to all different ways to subscribe. You can follow us on social media. Uh, if you really want to get in and uh, talk about all the stuff Todd says on, on this episode, get in the Slack and uh, you know, register an opinion. Tell us if you think it's good or bad or uh, what you're doing. We'd always like to interact with you that way. And if you want a sticker, we have plenty of Software Defined Talk stickers. So this is all you got to do. Just got to send me an email with your postal address and send it to stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com, and I will be happy to send you a sticker anywhere in the world. And with that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.